0: I'm good, my, 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 is my internet might be lagging? I don't know.
1: I, my internet's been pretty, pretty
0: bad today, so. Coming to you from the
2: heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University
0: of Virginia with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Bolowski, and I'm a second year postgrad MPP student. You know, this election really reinforced the division along party lines in our country. And those party lines can really, I think, be translated into an urban rural divide. With the presidential election in every state, it was Donald Trump winning rural counties big and then waiting to see if the metro areas would carry the day for Joe Biden. My co-host today is Maureen Coffey. Maureen is also a second-year MPP student, but she is also currently serving as the president of the Virginia Young Democrats. She's that person in this program for me where a five-minute conversation turns into a 30-minute conversation pretty quickly, and I mean that in a good way. So I'm excited for you all to meet Maureen. Then Maureen and I had a chance to catch up with Delegate Sam Rasool, who grew up in the Roanoke Valley and now represents the city of Roanoke in the House of Delegates. Delegate Rasool is one of just a few Democrats from the western part of the state serving in the House. He's also one of its more progressive members and just recently formally announced his candidacy for lieutenant governor. Delegate Rasool makes it clear where he stands and what his values are, unabashedly embracing policies like the Green New Deal. So we wanted to talk with Delegate Rasool about his approach to politics, especially in an Area of the state that while his district in Roanoke City is blue, the surrounding rural area is very red, especially now when the national political headlines are about unsuccessful searches for voter fraud and party infighting. Personally, I, I really appreciated our conversation with Delegate Rasool and how he approaches politics, and I hope you all will too. But first, let's, uh, let's meet our co-host and let's talk to Maureen. Mm-hmm. So, Maureen, I know that you've had a ton of free time on your hands in the last uh, few months. Uh, I say that very sarcastically. I know you've probably been like the busiest person at Batten um, over the last few months, given your role as the president of Virginia Young Democrats. But just how, how are you feeling?
1: Um, you know, a little bit exhausted still, but we're we're digging out from the pile of work I put off during the election season. Uh, starting to play some catch up and be a real person again.
0: <laughs> well, so uh, before we get into the the election stuff and and really what you guys did with the Young Dems, um, I'm just kind of curious. Um, you know, what what was it that that brought you to Batten in the first place?
1: Yeah, I kind of knew even during undergrad or at the end of undergrad that i was going to want a graduate degree um i wasn't really sure what direction i wanted to go but as i kind of started doing more politics and policy relevant things post-college i really realized the broad need for evidence-based policy and people who understand research and statistics and how um policy making works from a, you know, from a quantitative empirical side, um, and how to convert that into policies that really work for people. Um, I think that there's definitely a broad movement in that direction, but I wanted to make sure that I was a part of that and responsibly advocating for policies that we know will work. Um, rather than advocating to pour money into things that honestly have very little effect for people and we're kind of just running up a bill because it sounds nice.
0: You know, it's, you know, now that hearing you talk about that and you and your um, why you came to bat and, and I'm kind of putting this together with your role with the Virginia young Democrats, because that you're, you're interfacing and talking, you know, you're kind of organizing ways to interact with voters. And so you have kind of the substance that the policy, but then you kind of have to sell that and, and convince voters. And I'm curious from your perspective and your role, you know, how do you, um, you know, um, What's that been like for you? Because I imagine you've probably interacted with a ton of voters over the last month or two.
1: Yes, yes, I have, um, and I think part of it comes down to building trust and and people not thinking you're bsing them. Um, I don't know. I don't know what language we're allowed to use on here, but um, whatever you want. <laughs> I think I think that a lot of people do think that a lot of policy pitch is bullshit and it's really building that trust to say like, you know what? No, I agree with you that there's so much government waste and we we say things that are never going to happen. Um, but here are the things that we can get done on this topic that matters to you. And I'm saying that not because I just need you to vote for me, but because I truly passionately believe in this policy um, and in this change that, you know, I'm out here knocking doors for Dr. Cameron Webb because he actually really has a good vision for healthcare uh, because you know what? He's worked in the healthcare system and he's seen the ways that it fails people. So, you know, it's, it's those kinds of conversations where for me, you're just, you're cutting out the more traditionally political side where it's mostly just rhetoric and you're coming in with um, the evidence, the facts and saying, we know that this doesn't work. We have to try something else.
0: I, I think you touched on something that it feels like it's, it's becoming a lot more. Um, and I don't know. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I feel like what Donald Trump has shown, and I think he is full of it more than any politician that we've ever seen, but I don't think he sounds like he's full of it, if that makes sense. like I think he's a good salesperson, um, and he doesn't sound like a politician, and I actually think that that is, you know, as far as the the trust, like if someone just comes off sounding like a politician and like they're kind of just basically playing you for the vote, I don't know. It just feels like that's something that is way more important than I would have considered maybe four years ago.
1: Yeah, I think that that is a driving factor behind why a lot of people got behind Trump is that they felt like he was a tell-it-like-it-is everyday person. I know that there were even studies from a linguistic standpoint um, that showed just how much Trump's speeches deviated from a typical political speech and coincided much more with conversational linguistics in terms of the way you would talk to a friend or just in conversation. Um, And so there is, there really is something to that. And I think, you know, Obama, for example, had a very political cadence. He was super put together and a phenomenal speaker and that worked for him. And I think it's about figuring out um, what's an authentic identity in terms of speaking and, and, you know, don't, don't be out there trying to be Obama when, when you're not. And it, it, People will know you're inauthentic. People will be able to read that real fast. And that's a very good way to lose people's trust.
0: So you have uh, served as the president of the Virginia Young Democrats in a presidential election year in the middle of a pandemic. Um, what what was what was your day to day like, Marine?
1: Um, Crying sometimes. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it really just takes a serious amount of flexibility and grace, both for myself and for other people. Um, I'm lucky to have a team behind me that is pretty darn competent. Um, but you know, it ranges everything from checking in with our campaigns director and making sure that we have RSVPs for events and contacts with the campaigns we're planning to work with, to um, having weekly meetings with the Democratic Party of Virginia's Youth Coalition Leader and the Voter Protection Director um, to talk about you know, what's going on on college campuses. There are new laws that just got passed in September that changed how we vote. Are we sure we understand them? Are we sure that college students understand them? Um, just really making sure to, to protect the vote and to make everything as easy as possible for um, young people, and then, you know, it's it's doing the phone calls and the texts on my own, and <laughs> really uh, spent a long time talking to uh, North Carolina voters, which that one hurts a little bit, but, um, you know, we, we called, we made, uh, as an organization, about 600,000 voter contacts um, between the end of august after the democratic national convention and election day um so we're pretty we're pretty proud of that over half a million voter contacts is is very solid for a pandemic (laughs) Um, but it really you know i think the one thing that this role has taught me is you can have the best laid plan and to-do list but every single day something's going to get thrown at you then you're just throw the list out the
0: window and start over. I relate to that very much. Uh, that sounds a lot like uh, a lot like my day as well. Um, well, you know, how did you know, this was a different kind of uh, organizing strategy and outreach strategy, whereas Democrats didn't do a lot of door knocking. And so how much of that, you know, um, where, it, it almost feels like the traditional playbook is kind of thrown out thrown out the window just in general. Um, you know, and and what kind of wrench did that throw into things?
1: I think the biggest wrench was just the overwhelming anxiety it produced for people to not be able to go into this knowing like, you know, this is the formula. this is how many contacts on the doors we need in order to turn out this many people. Um, I am not a field director, but I know that there is very studied and careful math behind a lot of those numbers. Um, and so, you know, you throw that playbook out, which we, we had to do from a public health standpoint and you just kind of wing it. There was a number of conversations I was a part of where everyone was just kind of throwing ideas out and being like, let's just try them all because we've never done any of this before. We don't know if it will be effective, if it won't be effective. Um, But we have to do something. So it was a lot of creativity and, and just, you know, people being willing to really put themselves and their ideas out there and say, I have no idea if this will work, but I thought about it. And here's an idea. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that as as well as this went for the most part for Democrats and as important as I hope everyone is realizing uh, digital organizing is and relational organizing, talking to your friends and family and, and making sure that you make those connections. Um, I'm pretty confident that when we are able to go knock doors again, that is still going to be the priority because those face-to-face conversations are just – so much more effective than anything else.
0: Well, and so you mentioned over a half a million um, kind of voter contacts, um, and it resulted in, and you told, uh, you made sure you mentioned this to Delegate Rasul, but you had, uh, Virginia had the second highest young voter turnout, uh, only second to Georgia in the country. So um, I imagine when you, when you heard or saw that, that probably validated a lot, of, a lot of the work that went into the last last few months.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I will also say, you know, it's not just VAYD as, as much as we, I think we were a big part of that, our, uh, coordinated campaign and the individual, um, campaigns that just mobilized so many people. Uh, I think young people in Virginia feel very passionately about Elaine Luria, Abigail Spamberger, Jennifer Wexton, Cameron Webb, all of these people who just, um, are pretty inspirational. And for those of us who grew up in Virginia, you know, they are kind of the face of the change that we've seen over our lifetimes. Uh, I grew up in in Prince William County, which when I was in high school was a red county. And now I don't think a single Republican representative is part of that county. So it's it's, the momentum is there. And I think the candidates being so incredible are really part of what brings people out.
0: Well, the beauty of Virginia is that we get to vote every year and that next year in 2021, we have our three statewide offices that are going to be on the ballot, attorney general, lieutenant governor, and then governor. And, you know, it's like everybody and their uncle is running for, um, you know, I think lieutenant governor and governor, and I'm I'm just curious, you know, for the for the Virginia Young Democrats, what's what's kind of the role that you guys will play in the lead up to November, and and what is what is the next, um, you know, what does 2021 look like for you all?
1: Yeah, first and foremost, uh, we have 2021 legislative session coming up, starting in January. Um, our timeline is definitely a little bit different because special session lasted just about as long as regular session would. Um, And so now, currently, we're in the process of, of putting together legislative priorities and figuring out what bills and things we want to lobby on during uh, January, February, and a little bit of March. And so that is kind of number one priority is getting legislation passed in the beginning of the year. Um, As we head into the 2021 primaries, um, as an affiliated organization with the Democratic Party, we will not be endorsing anyone. Um, we cannot use our organizational power in that way. So we will remain impartial and I hope to do at least some kind of uh, events to allow candidates to introduce themselves specifically to young people. We'll see what that looks like. Obviously everything in the spring is still pretty up in the air as far as what will be happening. Um, But definitely want folks to have a chance to to meet candidates and make sure that they get their questions answered and they know where people stand on the issues. Um, And then once we have our candidate, we will get right back to passionately campaigning for uh november and in addition to the statewide we also have election in november um and so we will be out in force across the commonwealth trying to protect our democratic majority and maybe even expand it in a few places
0: you know so we had a chance to catch up with delegate sam Rasoul, and he is a delegate in the city of roanoke and he and i actually we grew up in the same area and if you actually look so in the house of delegates there are three Democrats who serve in the House of Delegates um, that are west of Richmond. And one is Delegate Chris Hurst, who's in Blacksburg in the New River Valley. One is Delegate Sam Rasool, who is in the city of Roanoke. And the other is our professor, Delegate Sally Hudson. So there are three Democrats west of Richmond that actually serve. And he, he's actually of those. He's the only one who actually grew up in, in southwest Virginia. Um, I think Delegate Hurst. I think grew up in in Pennsylvania, but but he, um, you know, I, I've um, kind of followed his his political career for the last twelve years. He ran for Congress in '08, but um, you know, we had a chance to catch up with him, and it, he's very refreshing. I, I think that uh, his approach to politics is one that, regardless of policy stance, you know, is one I think that's that's easy to get behind. And um, you know, I, um, I I learned quite a bit about. Um, you know, his approach in, in our, in our conversation. And it's, um, it feels like the approach, you know, if Democrats want to expand that coalition to more rural areas, uh, you know, um, his approach, I think is, feels like it's, it's the, it's the way to go. But that rural-urban divide, you know, it seems like it just keeps getting further with, with every year.
1: I think the urban-rural differences, you know, as we, as we move towards a more tech-focused economy, it, becomes a bigger problem, right? Like our systems are no longer as integrated. We have parts of Virginia that don't have access to even, you know, the simplest broadband internet. Um, and that's naturally going to create a, a pretty big division between those areas. But I think, you know, you mentioned Delegate Resul's, uh perspective and his approach to things. I think we have some really great party leader, leadership um, on these issues that we're going to we're going to get there. We're going to work on it. Um, we're going to actually pass policy now that uh, Democrats are in the majority. And I think that we have a long way to go, but people are, are doing really good work to get there.
0: Well, with that, let's get to it and let's hear our conversation with Delegate Sam Rasool. So, Delegate Rasul, we just had a pretty consequential election. You just formally announced your candidacy for lieutenant governor. We're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, simply, how are you feeling?
2: For me, it's, um, you know, there was no uh, clear mandate uh, in in this past election. Um, It's clear that the the country is still divided. I think the way a lot of us feel um, is just a sense of relief that maybe we can turn a corner here uh, for sure as a country. Uh, but it, to me, uh, there, there's clearly a lot more work to do uh, and uh, coalitions to build.
1: Yeah, uh, what has this past week been like since you officially, officially announced your uh, run for Lieutenant Governor?
2: It, it's been uh, overwhelming, uh, I think to, to say it uh, the right way. We've had such great uh, responses from so many people, um, <clears throat> so much support. Uh, so um, we're, we're very, very heartwarming. You know, I'm going into my eighth year in the General Assembly, so and I was active uh, as I ran for Congress back in 07-08, um, And you know, I've, I've had a chance to work with a lot of people, and and now to see those kind of relationships popping up from all over the commonwealth where we've crossed paths in in different ways either with maureen and the green new deal in northern virginia or um uh through relationships uh in in different ways i um it's been it's just been pretty cool uh to uh to kick it off
0: delegate rasul you um just want to talk talk a little bit about your background and you mentioned kind of the, you know, your first race back about a dozen years ago, but you grew up in, in Southwest Virginia in the Roanoke Valley. And you mentioned on your website that as, as a religious and ethnic minority growing up in that part of the state, you learned the value of building bridges, wherever you could, um, wherever you could find them. And so I'm just kind of curious, how did, how did where you grew up shape your politics?
2: Yeah. You know, it's really, um, Really, I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways because I think one of the most important skills that we can nurture in people is resiliency. And for me, I felt as though I, I had a, a really good childhood, but growing up in a working class family uh, with, you know, around a lot of people who weren't, uh, didn't really look like me or prayed like me, um, it always forced me to. Um, be more resilient, build more bridges, empathize, uh, and try to figure out where people are at. You know, it's it's kind of a source of privilege to be able to kind of sit neatly in one tribal camp and look across and just kind of disown everything else. Uh, where we really have a lot of work to do, and this is coming from somebody who's pretty liberal, um, is to to do the... Uh, bridge-building to show people that, you know, what we believe in uh, is a better agenda for uh, their future. And so, um, to me, that's kind of how it's all come together. Uh, My upbringing into my politics, and it's a bit idealistic, uh, I think, but I've come to terms with my idealism and I love being able to um, show, I think, a slightly different approach to, to politics.
1: Absolutely. And now that you're running for a statewide office and'm I'm, an, I'm a native Virginian, I'm from Manassas, uh, which has experienced its own miraculous changes lately. Um, but how how do you think we build those coalitions across, you know, the more populous, typically progressive parts of the state like Northern Virginia and Richmond? Um, And areas where Democrats haven't historically been as successful. So like Southwest, South side kind of areas.
2: Yeah. I think you really have to focus on uh, trying to, to uh, build systems around values. And um, you know, there's a guy named Jason Kander, who was elected official out in Missouri who wrote a piece that talked about, you know, if you're talking to a jury, you've got to make sure you're making the case to the whole jury and uh, not make one case to one person and then go to the next person because then the jurors look around and say, well, that's not exactly what you told me. And and I think sometimes we we forget that, you know, we've got to have a bold set of values that we firmly believe in and then find a way to effectively communicate that. To build the broadest uh, coalition, and you know what I find is people who are suffering in deep Southwest Virginia, inner city Roanoke, um, across Manassas, in the Hampton Roads. I mean, they're just similar struggles, uh, and, and oftentimes um, we we don't know exactly the best way to connect those dots, and that's the critical critically important way of building a coalition. Uh, And there's a distinction between coalition and unity, and especially with politics on the left. I mean, uh, I think that unity is a thing of the past um, and we shouldn't be talking about it or trying to push for it. The distinction is with coalitions, we understand and respect that there are unique individual voices uh, at at the table, uh, and they maintain that uniqueness. Well, at the same time, we agree to common goals that we work towards.
0: How do you think, um, how do Democrats make that that resonate in Southwest Virginia? Because, you know, obviously in the last week or so, on a national level, at the federal level, you know, there's kind of the Democrat progressive versus moderate. And to me, especially in the rural-urban divide and, you know, being growing up where, where you grew up, I, it almost feels like the message itself um, or what's being pushed isn't necessarily the issue as opposed to how it's being pushed. And um, you know, there's, I know in Southwest Virginia, a lot of people think Richmond will talk down to Southwest Virginia. Nova will talk down to Southwest Virginia. And I, I hear that a lot. And I just wonder um, if it's more about how, how that message is being conveyed rather than what it actually is.
2: I, I think actually it begins first with relationships. Um, the way. The neuroscience works is everything goes to the limbic system where trust or fear are stored, and either people trust you or they fear you. Uh, and before you can start depositing information, messaging things the right way, there has to be a relationship there. Uh, and you know, if you think about it, doesn't matter, you know, Sam the politician, whatever I say, you might agree with the information, but there may be just ways that I'm. Uh, you know, trying to connect with you that don't sit right. Um, and and it, it's important for us to to reinvest in, in those relationships as uh, time progresses. So uh, kind of think about it this way. If you think about a company, and many times in politics, we think about the front end of the company, like the sales and marketing, right? How do we improve our sales and marketing so that way more people will buy our product? But you know, what What really keeps you coming back? It's gonna be the customer service and the product. Um, and, you know, very rarely uh, as a party and in politics, do we talk about the actual product um, and the customer service. And right now we're just finding innovative ways to spam text you or, you know, to invade and disrespect your space just so we can do more marketing, to try to get more votes. Instead of trying to meet you where you're at and understand what your pain is, uh, so we can build that relationship and moving forward, you know it's nothing new if you think about how the unions were so strong uh, for decades. It was a relationship building, and that's why they harp so much on the solidarity and that's the kind of the basics that we have to get back to.
1: yeah, I really like that, um and especially as someone who has sent many of those texts, I understand how intrusive they can be um and I guess. You know, this is going to be a crowded 2021 primary. There are, I think, nine other people already announced for lieutenant governor, and probably more to join. Um, how do you how do you view your strategy in terms of there being so many people, and we're still kind of in this COVID world where we can't gather in person? How do you build those relationships and and get to people that you maybe haven't had a chance to have a prior relationship with.
2: You know, when I was thinking about, uh, should I run and then how I should run? Um, I came back to my three family values. We, I have three children at home and I raised them with, you know, always tell the truth, always be kind, never give up. So these three values of truth, love, and grit is actually how we structured the whole campaign, uh, with the truth being a, kind of first of its kind crowdsourced uh, people's platform. We're taking ideas from across the commonwealth that are good progressive ideas to integrate into a larger platform. Uh, Number two, the love part is uh, operationalizing something we started several years ago called Democratic Promise, where our volunteers are going to call folks um, and try to connect them with government services. You know, I think this is what we call proactive constituent services. You know, when is the last time we called people and just to check in on? Uh, And to me, that builds a lot of goodwill. And I think that's the way you party build. And then the grit is Virginia grit. I'm physically visiting every city and county in Virginia in a safe way. But to gather stories of uh, uh, the struggles of Virginians, Uh, and making sure that I'm able to elevate those stories and and take them all the way to Richmond. So operationalizing those values, which is core to how I live my life, what I believe in, and now integrating that into a campaign is how we hope to build a winning coalition.
0: I love, by the way, that... uh... Your daughter is the one who uh, designed your your kind of uh, campaign slogan and the and the logo there. I thought that was uh, I love the video you have of her on, on the website.
2: Yeah, she's way uh, more artistic than than I am, and uh, so I'm, I'm very fortunate for it's it's a team team effort uh, for sure.
0: Was that the first draft?
2: That was yeah. Uh, I'm trying to go <laughs> back. I'm trying to think. Um, that was, uh, I I said, here's what I believe in is the truth, love, and grit. And, uh, why don't you come up with something for a bumper sticker? And, uh, and that's what she came up with. And she talked me through it. She's like, you know, I thought the love could actually be the heart in the shape of a planet. Uh, and then having a tree coming out of the earth and then have this rainbow over top um i'm like man i am not going to argue with you uh just the the wonder and the innocence of these beautiful children is uh something that keeps us going for for me as well
0: it's yeah i, I also have three kids i've twin 5 year olds and to hear them and where their mind goes it's um it can be inspiring sometimes right but um it, you know you mentioned when you were deciding whether or not to 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 run and because there there are so many folks there does your you know, with all these other, um, all the other candidates that are out there, does that change the strategy at all? Or is the approach the exact same if it's just you and, you know, one or two others?
2: You know, you you might argue that there are some tactics here and there that are different. But for me, the way I've always run my races, I was in a four-way primary uh, going into this, uh, this office when I was elected seven years ago. Um, and it was just you know, knocking on a bunch of doors, staying true to our values. The key is not to uh, sway away from who you are. I mean, people can really quickly tell when, you know, your authenticity begins to wane um, or you're heading down a path that doesn't make sense. The Sam that you have on this podcast should be the same Sam you see on social media, on TV, uh, as we interact in person, uh, what people are looking for is that consistency. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that there are, you know, lots of uh, folks in the, in the conversation. But for me, it's always got to be about you know running our plan uh, to try to connect with folks, meet people where they're at, and, and staying true. Uh, and, and to me, that's what's most important.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I know that there are a lot of uh, your friends and allies from the House in the race with you, as well as um, the gubernatorial race has quite a few candidates jumping in as well with, again, more likely to join. Uh, And this might be a a fraught question that you don't want to answer, but are there any gubernatorial candidates uh, in particular that you'd be excited to work with or that, uh, you have a preference for?
2: I was waiting on Maureen, but I guess since I'm not gonna get that, uh, look, you know, for me, like I said, uh, it's all about, uh, you know, you can be bold in what you stand for, but building relationships and coalitions everywhere, and so I'm uh, happy to work with whoever, uh, and especially as lieutenant governor, trying to make sure we work with um, anyone. Uh, in the legislature and and the gubernatorial administration to try to improve the lives of, of Virginians. I mean that's a very politician response, uh, but I love to just really focus on uh, what what we want to bring, which is you know obviously to elevate a variety of issues, but as I mentioned, to elevate a different type of politics that I think uh, people are yearning for after 2020 that has just kind of thrown everything at us.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, And I guess I wonder what you think it says about where Virginia Dems are at, where Virginia is at, that we have, I think, five gubernatorial candidates, nine lieutenant governor candidates, and three attorney general candidates all on the Democratic primary side. Um, You know, what does that say about us right now?
2: (laughs) Well, clearly, there are a lot of individuals who are excited about um, how Virginia has, uh, has evolved. Uh, And so what's just as important uh, as we become more and more blue, hopefully, is how we do that. Um, And that is important to me, uh, to make sure that we are inclusive, uh, that we are open, uh, that people do feel like they have a seat at the table, that we find ways of uh, trying to uh, break through some of these special interests. I mean, uh, you know, many of the issues in, in Richmond are not Republican and Democrat. Uh, they are uh, really powerful special interests who, you know, try to ram through what they think is, is best. And many of you know that, you know, I've, I've got a lot of battle scars from taking on Dominion um, and, and some others. And, it's, you know, I'm not here to be anti-whatever. I'm just here to be for the people uh, of Virginia. And, and there are times where that's not easy. And there are times when people in in our own party uh, as Democrats, you know, maybe don't see eye to eye on those things. But what I can do is control um, my message and my race. And that's why I'm proud that our uh, campaign for lieutenant governor uh, hopes to be the first statewide campaign to win completely funded by only individual donors as we move forward
0: you you mentioned the the battles with dominion and uh, you know just kind of going along the theme of you know being a progressive in a more rural part of the state you know where you, where you have a kind of a sea of red surrounding you. you you have uh embraced really the green new deal and that's something that that you don't shy away from and i'm i'm curious how how does um how does that process of, of kind of appealing to, obviously you have a blue district, but in all the communities around you, Botetourt County has, you know, the wind farm that that's uh, I believe might be operational now, but you know, how how do you you know, you don't shy away from, from things like that. And how do you go about, you know, making that pitch and and getting people and building those coalitions in those more um, with those more red surrounding areas?
2: Yeah. I think it's so important to just hold true to your values and what you believe in. I, believe in a Green New Deal because I believe in the intersectional approach, meaning as we develop environmental policy, we've got to make sure that uh, struggling working families that uh, are are not negatively impacted uh, by this stuff. And in fact, let's use it as an excuse to uplift uh, these families and to make sure that what the decisions that we make are socially just. Uh, what does that mean in practicality? I mean, does that mean that that means that we're uh, not only providing you know great-paying, great-benefited jobs, but in addition to that, are we being mindful of the communities that we're making these investments in? Uh, are we thinking about land use? Are we integrating farmers? Are we ensuring that you know they're not just railroading uh, poor um, minority communities when when we're actually building um, some of these new investments? You know, all of that needs to come together uh, in, in how we approach things. Uh, and, and so when I'm, when I'm talking with folks, you know, a Green New Deal means we're going to make these green investments in a way where it doesn't unnecessarily, you know, jack up your a power bill by 40%. You know, why do we need to exacerbate income inequality anymore as we tackle the environmental crisis just to enrich a few um and 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 to me when you when you start talking about your electric bill then you know a lot of people's heads start nodding uh cuz people are upset with how monopolies have taken advantage of the system
0: do you feel like your message has been able to kind of gain gain some traction uh even in in places where maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't have expected it you know um or you wouldn't expect it based on the national narrative
2: in some areas yes uh, in some areas it's been more um stopping the, the bleeding um you know when i first entered the general assembly seven years ago it, i felt like almost like i was on an island and now we have some more voices while still in the minority who are uh speaking up and and trying to make sure that we hold in check uh, a variety of policies um, otherwise uh, what happened in years past is they would just go unquestioned and so now we are asking the hard questions many times making sure that we're able to uh, to improve um policy even when it's bad policy coming through um you know hate to kind of bring it up but the you know clean economy act which now has been well documented uh to be a boondoggle uh i adamantly fought against it which was, you know, the kind of the largest and let's say the largest environmental bill um, to come to Virginia. Because fundamentally, uh, now we, we know for sure it's going to create um, tens of billions of dollars in extra excess profit for Dominion and others. Uh, and there's no reason to do that. You know, so, you know, for me, it's about uh, ensuring that we are being just in uh all of our approaches uh to whether it be the environmental crisis or some others
1: yeah and i think we've seen in virginia in particular uh a lot of legislation that comes up in very confusing and often convoluted ways and i guess i'm wondering kind of what your approach is to being able to explain and communicate those nuances just to the general public. When you have a bill like right to work, that sounds like a very positive thing. uh, And you dig deeper. And it's, it's really not anything that it says that it is.
2: Yeah, you know, like, I, I tell folks, for example, I'm pro blue collar, right. And so blue collar means workers, it also means small business owners who are uh, out there, working hard, especially these micro-businesses. And, and you know, unfortunately, we haven't built that coalition. We've allowed for micro-businesses and small businesses to uh, be co-opted by kind of larger industries instead of saying, you know, we understand you are blue-collar, you're working hard day in and day out to try to make things happen. And so that's an example of, you know, how we can try to build a, a broader coalition and, and say, hey, you know, when you got something like right to work, all we're saying is that we're, we need to make sure that there aren't obstacles for workers to be able to represent themselves. And, uh, you know, we, we've got so many special interests who are very well funded and representing their interests in the General Assembly, for example, Uh, Why can't we uh, ensure that uh, workers um, can be able to effectively bargain uh, on behalf of uh, them and their colleagues?
1: Kind of on a related note, uh, if you had the opportunity to pick, you know, the first three pieces of legislation that get through in this upcoming uh, legislative session in January, what... um, what would your top three be?
2: Mm, one of my first one. okay, so let's say uh, the Green New Deal Act, let's put that off to the side, so let's say that that's number one, um, which has a number of components, You know, stopping uh, having a moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure, having transition assistance for any workers who are impacted, being aggressive in our RPS, having investments in energy efficiency, which helps you know, um, bring people's uh, electric bills down, and helps to lessen our carbon footprint. So there's that portion. Uh, Number two would be uh, to really challenge our education system uh, specifically uh, to have a, uh, give a lot more latitude for teachers to be able to invest in the socio-emotional growth and development of our children. I think that so many of our issues stem from a lack of a socio-emotional foundation from a very early age, whether it be in mental health or substance abuse, um, uh, our health uh, attainment, income attainment, IQ. I mean, so much of it comes back to the holistic child development. And, um, you know, we try to put that all in the education bucket, but it's, it's really bigger than that. And I feel like we've, We've um, allowed for a couple of generations of, of emotional zombies to, to come out. It's, you know, they did a study and one out of every, almost one out of every four millennials, as a millennial myself, says they have zero friends. Can you imagine that? Can you, what, what kind of crisis that we are facing? So we're so busy trying to teach these kids you know, the, how to read fast and their numbers. And, and, and we haven't invested in their, um, social and emotional health and foundation. So that to me is a uh, I think going to be a, a, a top issue is, is always a, a top issue uh, for me. Um, and then you kind of get into some more wonkier things around like, um, uh, it would be great if we were able to pass a public option here in Virginia uh, where people could buy into health uh, health insurance through our Medicaid program um, uh, instead of having to just only shop out there on the open individual market. You know something like that would be a game changer. Um, but if you uh, want to like really shake the system, you know we have got to drastically change the way we fund our campaigns. Uh, because that in and of itself undermines so much of our good policy. Uh, So, you know, coming up with innovative ways of um, uh, eliminating donations from public service corporations at the very least to implementing, um, you know, more um, robust campaign finance reform, I think, is just critical.
0: I know our... um... Our professor and your colleague, uh, Delegate Sally Hudson, she always will say, you know, you got to fix democracy, I guess, before you can tackle, tackle the other, the, a lot of the other topics.
2: Yeah, 100%. And yeah, she, Sally's pushing a ranked choice voting, which I think is wonderful. You know, I'm a fan of um, uh, having an innovative system where you have a two round um, primary and general system where everyone runs together, and you have a ranked choice vote throughout that. Um, you know there are just better ways of of, of doing it, and and uh, amen to Sally on you know trying to fix democracy.
0: Delegate Rasul, how do you um, you know, with the way Virginia is trending, and and it sounds like, and I, I've been you know it's been refreshing to hear how you you talk about you know just the nuts and bolts of making government work for people. Um, but how seriously, um, and it sounds like, you know, this is a pretty top priority for you, but, you know, as Virginia, you know, trends more blue and enacts more progressive policies, I mean, it really feels like it's a, um, you know, pretty significant responsibility for the progressive movement as a whole to show that Virginia is working well as it, you know, enacts these policies. And, um, you know, I, I guess it's, um, not enough to just gain power, but then, you know, how effective, you know, you are and, and really helping the people. And so, um, you know, it, it's been refreshing, I guess, to, to hear you talk about, you know, just really making the government actually work for people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, look, some, some things to keep in mind is, you know, in my years of public service, I've learned it's not enough to be right. You have to bring people along and we owe it to them to bring people along. And if I have a great progressive policy, um, that I am pushing for, and it doesn't have 60% support uh, with, with the people, uh, it's not that that law doesn't need to pass right now, but I need to go and assure people, and I need to do some educating uh, and, and do some organizing to make sure that people feel comfortable and confident in that policy. Uh, I feel like there's an obligation to do that. I mean, 60% of the people uh, polled support a Green New Deal. Uh, and that's why I'm supportive of it. And so, while there are other policies like jungle primary that i uh, or, uh, or an open primary that I feel very passionate about, um, you know it probably polls like thirty percent or forty percent. So that means there's some education there uh, to to be done. And that's how we responsibly approach this is not just sit on our high horse and say, "This is what's best for you," but to have a conversation with folks and to, Make sure that people understand this is why we're, we're approaching things a certain way. That's how you build trust. And to me, the, you know, being a Democrat and the party that believes that these institutions have an important role in our lives, uh, it's so critical for us to build that trust as we move forward.
1: I think that that is a really great segue into uh, another question I have, which is, really based off of a lot of my work uh, in the young Dems and in getting new people to the table, new people involved, which is that politics and policy and legislation, it all feels so intimidating and far off and, you know, not for me if I'm not a connected person. So I think my big question is how do we bring more of those people to the table and how do we get voices that aren't already being heard, um, to, to see that it is their place to get involved.
2: Yeah, I think it's good to probably scrap half of our campaign tactics. You know, it's, uh, look, it's, it's not, we, we've all made the calls. We've all sent the texts, we, you know, all, all this stuff. Um, but are we really meeting people where they're at and, and engaging them? Uh, you know one thing that I hate is when people say, we, we got to go tell all these young people it's their civic duty to go and vote." Uh, no, no, you don't approach it that way. That's not how it works. You have to empower them to be able to make critical decisions and get them involved in in processes and show them you know that there's a value here. Once people value the process, then they'll want to be involved, not forced to be involved because we're gonna guilt you into it because it's your civic duty. Like in my district, I have a a growing Hispanic population. People, oh, you better go get them registered to vote so they can come vote for you. They don't even know what a delegate is. Like most people don't even know what a delegate does. And so what do I need to do? Tell them what a delegate's about and make sure you come and vote for me? No, I need to say, here's my card. Call me when you need some help. Here's some resources for you. And then they will come to the conclusion that, hey, this is a good thing. How do I get more of this? Like, Well, you you can elect more people who believe in these things and you'll get more of these resources. You know, this is to me, it's just so basic, but we just miss the boat sometimes.
1: Totally. One quick note, uh, Virginia was the second highest state for youth turnout in the 2020 election, uh, only following Georgia, so pretty proud.
2: Maureen, Maureen, representing, <laughs> she pulled them all out.
0: Well, Delegate Rasul, this is, um, yeah, you know, this has been um, great. Really appreciate you taking the time. We we always end our interviews with with the same question for all our guests, and this is. Um, What's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have shared with you as a student or a, um, either a graduate or an undergraduate student?
2: You know, growing up, I uh, worked, uh, I feel like I, I worked pretty hard and um, I naturally uh, wasn't a, like a very emotional person. I think I was naturally just kind of like driven. I just wanted to go and get things done. And one important tool that I felt uh, as though I needed to grow over time uh, was to uh, intentionally try to be more empathetic. And um, and empathy is a skill that has to be refined continuously over time. And, and so over the years, I've had to really work on trying to understand where people are at i mean and some people will be on the complete opposite end of a spectrum on what you know what their view is on something and 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 so for me i I, i'm really trying to put myself in their shoes not to agree with them um but if i can't understand why emotionally they got to that point i will never be able to reach them and so uh, my uh, one piece of advice is, you know, to really focus on your emotional intelligence. And the, the most important part of that, uh, one of the most important parts of that is is growing our, our, our empathetic skills.
0: That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Delegate Sam Rasool. Thank you to my co-host, Maureen Coffey. And thank you to Ben Feldman and Ben Teese for helping to put these episodes together. And a special congratulations to Ben Teese, who just got engaged. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.